You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Paul Sweeney along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day we bring you the most noteworthy and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts, as well as at Bloomberg.com. We're getting some earnings. It's been a great year for pretty much everything because we have experienced the everything rally that few were uh, entirely expecting. Joining us now to talk about how to position heading into year end is Greg Hahn. He is chief investment officer for Winthrop Capital Management, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Greg, uh, what are you doing? Cashing in, sitting on your hands? And waiting for the year to pass. Good morning. No, uh, I wouldn't say we're cashing in, but we are uh, moving risk out of portfolios, both on the fixed income side and the equity side. This is uh, something we started probably midway through the last quarter, and we're trying to get it done before mid-November. So what is your view for, as we you know, pair through these earnings here and we start to look out to 2020, do you think the Fed will be continue to be supportive and you might go a little bit more risk on as you head into next year? Um, so this is a change for us heading into this quarter. What we're looking at, we, we would have been saying, yes, we're going to continue to de-risk. We're seeing enough momentum in Brexit and U.S.-China trade issues that could be uh, a catalyst for fixed investment and consumption from a global standpoint. Those barriers get uh, reduced. I don't know that they'll be removed, but reduced. We could actually see this economic recovery go uh, into the next two quarters in 2020. So which assets in particular look like a buy that wouldn't have otherwise looked like a buy if Brexit is resolved and there is some sense of some sort of trade truce between the U.S. and China? Uh, large cap equity has had a great run. So the S&P is up over 21%. But when you look at mid cap and small cap, small caps lagged. So that's one area. And with private credit expansion, we'd expect small cap to do well. The other area is the international space. Developed countries have lagged. We have not been a big mean reversion kind of firm. Uh, we're looking for capital flows to help support that. And so we'll probably increase our allocation to international next year. And does that include emerging markets? It does, yeah. Okay. As long as capital is flowing. And that was, historically, the European banks were big lenders into the uh, the emerging economies. Um, but it's right now, it's still, it looks like a train wreck when you look backwards, but you have to look forwards and look for the opportunity. So right now, what's your sort of breakdown in terms of the U.S. versus international exposure? Uh, we're um, in our... In our portfolios, we're about 15% international, so it would be 10% uh, develop, 5% emerging. So in your fixed income portfolio, 
you know, I'm starting to think about credit quality a little bit more as we, you know, 10, 11 years into this economic cycle. It's got to end sometime. Uh, what are you seeing in terms of the credit quality? So we have been watching closely for a shift in credit, and it's a great question. Uh, we're focused in the levered loan market. That's where the biggest, uh, his, you know, where the um, change in covenants, that's the first sign of uh, a deterioration. But when you look at banks, the, um, when, you, when you look at the loan loss provisions, um, the banks are really, really healthy right now. So we're not seeing it in the credit side. Go back 25 years and two thirds of the investment grade market was rated single A and higher. Today, two-thirds of the corporate market is rated triple B and lower. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's shifted, and we have lower interest rates and lower cost of capital for companies. It doesn't make sense from so, that. Right. So, so people have been raising this issue for a while, and everyone's been looking for the cracks in mm. credit markets. And some people point to leveraged loans uh, and even high-yield bonds, saying that there is a slice of them, both markets, yeah. that have fallen out of bed recently, uh, plunging in price. Is this a market event? or an economic event? Oh, that's a good question, Lisa. Um, from, from the standpoint of capital flows, I would say that this is, this is a capital market event. Um, and it's when you look at concentrations in certain sectors, like the energy sector in the high yield space, that's idiosyncratic, I think, in that area. Um, but the rest of the market looks, I mean, it, it's, it, credit has been really, really healthy. Consumer's healthy, and we'll tell you the manufacturing sector's healthy. So the Fed meets next week um, on the 30th. What do you expect from the Fed? And do you think the Fed will continue to be dovish and supportive of this economy? Yeah, Paul, I think this is, um, this, we're, we're expecting 25 basis points. And then in December, our base case has shifted now to a hold uh, with improvement. It's all contingent on what we see out of Brexit and the U.S.-China trade issues. So uh, right now, what do you like the least to own heading into your end? <laughs> That's a great question. Uh, so financial assets have been challenged. Probably the least. Right now we are um, reducing significantly high yield. So uh, we still have a short a sleeve and short duration high yield, but high yield pulling that, that out. Uh, anything levered. So leveraged loans, uh, BDCs, we want to stay out of the levered part of the, um, the markets. And we're, we're really running right up the middle. Um, dividend paying stocks we still are invested in. So I was going to shift gears to stocks. So again, one of the things we hear a lot from folks that are managing money is need to be defensive. But when you talk defensive, whether it's utilities or REITs or consumer staples, we also hear that those sectors aren't cheap. Oh, and uh, so you kind of run into the risk. How do you manage that balance? Yeah, that's 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 another good point. That uh, both both sectors, REITs and utilities, have had a great run this year. And really, what it is now is name name specific. And if you're investing in ETFs, you got to be careful because a lot of ETF sleeves have concentration issues in um, single names, like Microsoft in the uh, in the technology sleeve. So you, you kind of have to do your homework to see what's in there, and you got to pick your stocks right. So uh, let's say uh, you do everything right heading into year end. What kind of returns are you expecting? So if we ended the year today, which is I start to say that uh, the S and P it would be twenty it would be a twenty one percent return and bonds at eight percent in this interest rate environment to have an eight percent return in fixed income is is surreal. So then why not just cash in? 
Well, we have to stay fully invested. We're, so much of what we do is either funding liabilities or relative return, and we're not market timers, and we're not good at that, the, <laughs> the timing thing. So we're about a fifth of the way through earnings. Anything jump out at you here as you kind of parse through some of the early companies <laughs> reporting? Yeah. The banks have done really well again. I was surprised at how well the bank earnings have come through. And, and um, so that was, a, that was a pleasant surprise. We're, we're going to be looking at Microsoft coming up, and the t uh, Amazon comes up. Uh, this week also, so we're watching that. So are you, are you long the banks right here? How's your exposure? Yeah, we've, the sh we've, we've shifted. Um, we, we swapped uh, Bank America into City. We still own J.P. Morgan. And we're trying to get into the regional sleeve. Um, we've been long holders of Wells Fargo, and uh, we're encouraged by new management. So Very good. Greg Hahn, thanks so much for joining us. Greg Hahn is President and Chief Investment Officer, Winthrop Capital Management, based in Indianapolis. But joining us here in our Bloomberg Brokers, uh, Interactive Brokers Studio. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for joining us. All right, now let's shift gears to UBS. We're getting earnings uh, from a number of banks, UBS reporting. Uh, it's investment bank lagging behind. Here with all the details, Allison Williams, Bloomberg Intelligence Senior Financial Analyst. Uh, Allison, what are sort of the highlights of the financial report here? So I think the number one highlight was the strong wealth flows, especially in Asia. This is of strategic importance for UBS. It's uh, I think why a lot of investors own the stock, and we saw sort of a dip last quarter, very strong flows there, and invested assets at a record. Obviously, we have to watch what's happening with asset prices going forward. The negative um, was the investment bank, as you pointed out, and so profit coming in below expectations. Um, you know, a lot of companies have been beating the numbers. However, they're, be they're beating beaten down expectations and on fixed income trading, which isn't a big as big of a piece for UBS. But I think that the, the critical thing that they talked about was they are, they're reorganizing the bank. This is something that Bloomberg News has reported on. Um, they didn't say specifics there, but they did say they're going to take a $100 million restructuring charge, uh, leading to $90 million of uh, annual savings going forward. So, Allison, what do you think, what is your view of UBS? Can they continue to be, well, first of all, are they a global investment bank? And if so, can they continue to be? Because we've seen, you know, Deutsche Bank essentially say, we're not a global investment bank and we're cutting back. What's the UBS strategy? So I think they are a global investment bank, but they do have a little bit of a different mix. So they are more focused on Asia and they are more focused on Europe. Um, and so they say they're um, gaining share in those areas. We don't have sort of all the numbers in from, from some of those local competitors to sort of validate that. Um, but they are generally more focused on those areas which have been feeling the pressure. And I was waiting for you, Paul, to ask me if the savings meant staff cuts. That's where I was going. <laughs> and I was prepared with my answer this time, which is you always ask me, does cost savings mean staff cuts? And my answer to you is always like, well, there's staff, but there's also technology, and we're seeing both at UBS. And basically what they're saying is, look, you know, we are going to um, cut some staff. 100% of the cost savings are going to be in compensation, but we're going to continue to invest in technology. And I think that's important because I think that's really what the U.S. banks have done right, is that, you know, they sort of benefited from this virtuous cycle, a better economy. We got the tax cuts. They were able to spend, but I think, you know, UBS has had some interesting anecdotal wins in their uh, research department. They have this um, 
uh, evidence lab. They've also invested in their electronic um, trading platform. And I think that's a story we're going to continue to hear more about in terms of fixed income trading. We also got this big announcement from Deutsche Bank. We knew they were going to be making cuts to their rates business. Bloomberg News saying they think it's going to be 10%. Um, also saying, and, and again, this is hearsay, but you know that the bank is going to continue to invest on technology. You know, the shift in fixed income trading that we've seen in equities trading, I think, is going to continue. And I think it is important, to your point, if you want to be a player, that you need to invest. Just get your sense. Do you think that UBS would be better off just as a wealth management unit and not with its investment bank? I think, and, and that is the questions that investors ask, because I think, the, you know, when people look at companies like UBS and Credit Suisse, that's what they want to own. They want to own the wealth management business, recurring revenue, uh, very high return on equity. Um, but there are sort of benefits of having the investment bank ca- capabilities. Think about wealthy Asians that want to sell their businesses, the M&A opportunities, the financing opportunities, and UBS and Credit Suisse, you know, continue to pound the table to make the case of the synergies between the banks. You know, I do think that there is some uh, th- there is some validity to that argument, um, and I think we will see from from Credit Suisse next week, who has also been under pressure given their sort of trailing uh, trading revenue, a lot of which I do think is due to mix. I, you know, they I, I think are going to continue to outperform when they report next week. Allison William, thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. We know it's a busy time with uh, the Global Investment Bank's reporting earnings. Allison's a senior analyst covering global investment banks and asset management for Bloomberg Intelligence, joining us on uh, the phone. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists, But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Well, we all know that the cannabis market in the United States is growing rapidly, and there's a lot of players that are trying to find their niche within the business. That includes the marketing and advertising and education around cannabis, and our next guests are certainly trying to uh, make their mark there. Uh, we welcome Jeremy Jacobs, co-founder and chairman of Enlighten, and Colby McKenzie, co-founder, also on their board of managers of Enlighten. Both of them join us here in our blo- uh, Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So, Jeremy, let me, let me start with you. Just give us a sense of what Enlighten is and what you guys are trying to do in this market? Yeah, so Enlighten feels a really interesting niche. We're the largest uh, media company within the cannabis space. We operate a network of television screens and roughly a thousand cannabis dispensaries across 36 states and three countries. Really to kind of get a feel, if you imagine standing in line and you look up and there's a television screen, it's educating you, it's entertaining you, but it's also advertising to you. Uh, that's the biggest part of Enlighten's business. So Colby, 
How often are people standing online at a cannabis dispensary uh, able to watch television? Yeah, it's, it's actually an interesting thing because I was definitely a, a newbie to the space when I uh, co-founded this with Jeremy and expected it to be like most of retail where you just walk in, walk out as fast as you can. But you've kind of seen this trend in retail as a whole and cannabis is kind of leading that. And it's really become like this experience. So you're not going there just to have a quick general store type transaction. Instead, you're going there to experience and learn and really find your niche within the space. And so we actually have tracking technology that says they're in there for 21 minutes. Okay, when, when, when you say you're in a cannabis dispensary for an experience, I know I just think, okay, so you go there to get high. Is that what's going on? <laughs> um, a little different than that. So because there's so many different strains, so many different types, so many different things that you have options, it actually is like information overload. And it turns into this like, please help me, like deer in the headlights type experience. And that's why our screen is there to, to kind of guide them along the way without feeling embarrassed. So Jeremy, what are the types of advertisers that advertise on the Enlightened Network? Yeah, great question. Uh, really, they fall into two categories. The The first one's obvious, the endemic advertisers, the products that would be carried on the shelf. Same way if you had a screen in a convenience store, it'd be obvious to, to promote candy bars and Cokes. We have vape pens, edibles, uh, you know, premium bud that's prepackaged, those types of advertisers. But what we're seeing really more than anything is an increasing demand from non-cannabis companies that have decided to focus on that cannabis market for example vice showtime a lot of entertainment companies they come out with programs like bong appetit uh, obviously that's catered towards the cannabis market uh, and then you look at companies like DoorDash as an advertiser of ours in vans, delivery of food that's excellent for cannabis consumers, both hungry and lazy, uh, as well as vans, you know, a very popular skateboarding shoe. So there is a portion of the cannabis demographic that that fits perfectly. So we're really seeing a growth in the non-endemic advertisers in a really big way. How many cannabis dispensaries are there, Colby? So interesting question, because it is a transition from a gray market in many states to a legal market. So from a legal perspective, you're looking at about 5,000 across the nation. So I guess that when you say it's a gray area, are there other facilities that have access to your television feed? Sadly, no. We actually only work in the legal ones. But sadly, when I say gray, you're talking largely about like a California market where it was medical and it was very kind of gray as to what was a dispensary. We've always had a rule and a board, <laughs> our board is very strict on this rule, legal or uh, no TV for them. So, so Jeremy, give us a sense of, and Colby as well, I know you guys have uh, maybe some maybe differing thoughts. Where are we, just give us a sense of where are we in terms of the states? How many states have legalized uh, marijuana? And what is, I, I would guess the holding grail for the industry would be a federal legalization. Give us a sense of where you think that might be. Yeah, so you've, you've got about a dozen states that are now recreational. Uh, and, you know, that's really when the tipping point occurs, uh, especially for sales volume is when you go recreational. Uh, outside of that totality, you've got around 30, 33, 36, depending on how you look at medical marijuana, whether it's been elected or actually implemented. So you're looking at two-thirds of the country. Uh, past that, there's at least decriminalization in most of the other states. There's very few states that don't have some sort of cannabis legislation that's in place. As far as federal 
federal legalization. I think that's a big debate with everyone, but most of us within inside the industry definitely feel it's in, within two years. You know, it's a strong political marketplace right now, and so everybody wants to grab a hold of that. I wonder how much, though, the vaping scare recently has sort of set that effort back, Colby. I mean, have you seen uh, sort of fewer people showing up to the dispensaries, or if not that, more pushback from regulators? And so the interesting thing on the vaping scare is I feel like you saw a ton of reaction outside the industry. Inside the industry, it, was, it wasn't really viewed in any major capacity because it actually shows a sign that you need to move towards legalization because with legalization, you have more regulation, particularly coming from federal assistance and money and all of the illegal activity and kind of the vaping scare came from stuff that turned out to be not legal. Jeremy, we have literally 20 seconds. How much buying power do these people have? Cannabis consumers are some of the strongest buyers on the planet. They're some of the most loyal. They're big spenders. They spend on average just short of 100 extra dollars on cannabis. And so they've been proven to be some of the most loyal, biggest spenders. Jeremy Jacobs, as well as Colby McKenzie, co-founders of the company Enlighten, uh, which runs a television uh, in dispensaries uh, across yeah. the country. Who knew? Uh, who knew that it was 21 minutes in a, in, a, in a cannabis? Who knew a lot of these we're, things? We're having so many people associated with the cannabis business come in here, and there's so many different ways that this is actually growing as a business. Yeah, and that it's a, it's a real uh, big money maker. The official data is confusing, conflicted, and often not enough. That has been the conclusion of many investors, certainly, that are looking for alternative sources of data. One of them being Yelp, where you write reviews of the places you go. Uh, Carl Bialik, data science editor, joining us here uh, for Yelp in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. Carl, can you give us a sense? You have this Yelp economic uh, average. Can you give us a sense of what it is and what it's showing us right now? Sure. It's a look at how businesses are doing and how consumers are engaging with businesses and how that's changing. And it's across many different industries and all across the country, including in 50 metros that we track. And we just released today our third quarter findings, which show that things were pretty flat. The uh, economic average was up about 0.1%. So a little bit of good news, sort of the the sum total of all the different things we saw affecting the national and local economy in the third quarter. So Carl, is there anything, did you guys in your data see any regional differences or certain parts of the country doing better than others? Yeah, this time we really focused on California and California metros, which have been struggling. In particular, in the Bay Area, San Jose, out of the 50 big metros we've been tracking for almost three years now, has fallen the most, and San Francisco has fallen the second most. So it's a pretty clear picture in Northern California. Sacramento is also below average. And then if you go to Southern California, San Diego is one of the worst performing metros, and LA is in the bottom 10 as well. So what's wrong with California? Well, so this has changed since the third quarter of 20, uh, fourth quarter of 2016. So there's certainly many great things going on in California, I say, as, you know, California-based business. I mean, there's there's great things in the economy. It would be one of the world's largest economies. There, Carlos want nasty letters from people living in California. <laughs> right. Go on. Carry on. But, you know, this has changed. So there are struggles. There are declines that we attribute, we think, mainly to just the difficulty of being able to set up shop in California and then to find workers who are near your business and to be able to pay them enough so that they 
they can afford to live near your business while still turning a profit and having enough customers nearby who are going to give you that density that you need to, to stay competitive. Are there areas where you saw a surprising amount of strength? Yeah, we, we've been tracking for the last two quarters what we call the five boom towns, the ones each quarter that have grown the most since the start of this series three years ago. This time, uh, Milwaukee was the strongest. There's also strength in Buffalo, Portland, Maine, Honolulu. What? You know, maybe these okay. are not the ones you would put on a list normally. Uh, and, you know, what do we say they have in common besides that they've been doing very well in the Yelp economic average? But we do think there are these smaller metros that have been able to attract businesses and, uh, you know, allow people to take more risks, perhaps. But is this is this a real sort of sense of where we are in terms of, you know, however many years into this economic recovery, the areas that kind of lagged behind for longest are finally seeing some positive momentum in their local growth? Is that sort of the story here? I think that's a big part of it, yes. I think we are seeing that there are places that if you had checked in, you know, 10 years ago and where were they relative to each other, you might see something really different. And that this last three-year period is an interesting period, as you're saying, like in terms of the recovery, we've had a new president during this time. So it is really just this change through the history of this average. And we're going to be interested to see what's the boom town in one year and five years. So, Carl, one of the great things about Yelp reviews is the restaurant reviews. So what are you seeing in that category? Because I'm sure you guys have a lot of data points there. Yeah, and we're we're looking at re- reviews potentially, but also all the other things people do with restaurants and seeing that really the lower priced restaurants and the restaurant and food options that you might go to when you really want to eat at home and they're supplying food that you're going to take and eat at home, those are the strongest. Um, you know, there are some exceptions, but we're also seeing some of the more expensive categories in restaurants declining. Which, you know, could be a signal that people are being more frugal, but they might also just want to eat food made outside the home more often. So they're going to the lower priced options to make that possible. But it's interesting to see strength in some of these categories like pizza and chicken wings and delis. Although this all goes together, right? Some of the higher uh, priced markets are seeing the slowest growth. And, you know, whether it's in other businesses as well, California, I know that New York with property, uh, but you're also seeing slower growth or less popularity at the higher end of restaurants. What is the implication economically if the high end is starting to pull back a bit? I mean, it could it could suggest that there's some lack of confidence in you know spending money and consumption. Uh, there are other signals we look to for that, of course. But you know, I think that it's it's a complex picture because I think there's also just shifting geographically, and that may have to do with how expensive markets are, but also what the local regulations are and opportunities for workers in different sectors around the country. And in terms of food, I think. One thing that we've seen as a company in general is just a stepping up of quality in the lower price categories. So I think people also have recognized that, that, you know, what used to be considered like fast food, let's say, has has really stepped up in a lot of cases. You know, some of the lower priced uh, local restaurants as well have really been competitive in quality. Carl Bialik, thank you so much for joining us. Carl's a data science editor for Yelp, joining us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Paul Sweeney. I'm on Twitter at PT Sweeney. I'm Lisa Abramowitz. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. 
Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.